Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. I have a real privilege tonight to introduce Bob Gladstone. I know him and his wife, Gina, and all of their five children, and even uh, Jana's husband, Gethin, and their baby boy, and, and everybody is here present. Uh, but it is, I, I honestly don't even know how to calculate the impact. Man, let me, let me just tell you guys something. There are seasons of life when God will bring a person, right? Not an idea, not some strategy, not all of this stuff, but where many of the things, right, we cry out for something a lot of times. And in many instances, the way that God answers our cry for something is bringing into our life a someone, right? Relationships are important to the Lord. And I cannot, I honestly don't even know how to calculate the impact that has been had on my life. And in fact, I know no greater way to introduce someone other than to say I recognize deeply in my own life that I would not be who I am if it was not for the way that God has allowed the Gladstone family to influence me and my family. And we should be grateful for the people that God has brought into our life. Right, let me tell you, anybody that the Lord has used to have a real impact, a profound impact on you, honor is something you should take to the grave. Right, we should not become forgetful. And don't think that, oh, well, I'll never forget. The theme throughout the whole book of Proverbs is my son, don't forget. <laughs> don't forget. Because at times it's so easy for us to get caught up, to get consumed, to forget certain seasons where the impact that was made, where, where God used real people to bring us deeper into himself and to form us in a greater way into the image of his son. Uh, so I'm going to ask everybody in the room, would you, would you stand up on your feet with me? I know I just told you to sit down. This isn't like, like Holy Ghost aerobics. Right, we're not sweating to the holies. Right, somebody's going to steal that and start making workout videos. Be free. Let God use you. <laughs> uh, I know no greater way than to introduce the man that's going to come and minister the word of the Lord tonight, except to say, uh, Anna and I and our kids, we realize, man, if it was not for you guys, we would not be who we are. It, it's, it's an honor to have you guys here with us. Uh, would you help me tonight welcome Bob Gladstone as he's going to come? Thank you, everyone. Praise God. Yes, you may be seated. I do want to give honor and thanks to the Lord for this privilege for having me here at all. We are made strong in our weakness, and my life recently has been a testimony to that. 
And so I do want to give thanks to the Lord for having me up here at all. And I do want to give also honor and express my gratitude to Mike and Anna for this privilege of, of being a part of this convocation. Uh, the Brick Houses and the, the whole Burning Ones team, thank you for this uh, privilege to participate, but also for your investment in the city of Chicago. And we're, we're thankful for that. People have different gifts, and we needed you. Uh, I speak as if I'm from Chicago. I'm not, but I lived here for a year. Um, and so and there's a place in my heart for this city. And so thank you for your investment. But you guys that are here on the ground also, um, some of my best friends in the world, thank you for your investment here as well. God has a remarkable plan for this city and this region in his overall plan and in this, this country. I really believe that. I say that with conviction. I don't say it as cliche. And so hopefully all these things are working together to that end. Finally, Mike already mentioned my family. My entire family is here, which is really unusual because they're all grown-ups and moving in different directions with busy lives. And yet somehow, uh, I think Carol had a dream and a conviction that they were supposed to be here. So that must have settled it. <laughs> Uh, that's uh, we, obviously we take that seriously when Carol has a dream and a conviction. So here they all are on that entire row, the Gladstone family, including the Evans, because my daughter Jan is married to Gethin Evans, who's from Wales, and our first grandson Finley. Uh, particularly thanks to my wife Gina. Can you at least wave over there? Um, who is my very, very bestest friend and the greatest life partner. Uh, I could ever have, and she's helped me a lot these days within my own weakness, like I said. So, by the way, the blocks seem to be sitting on our, our family row, so um, there you have it. We should really be getting together more often, sharing now a, a name, so to speak. Um, but um, praise God for the faithful servants of the Lord, the saints of God in this city and in this region. For those of you that are visiting from the outside, I pray that you take a blessing home to your city, but God's doing a work here. And uh, it's, it's wonderful and I'm thankful to play a small role to add my piece to the puzzle for this convocation. I'm going to speak out of the book of Acts, chapter nine, Saul's conversion. So you could turn there, we're gonna read a good bit of that. <clears throat> This is an important passage to me personally, both in my own life, it's key to my calling, not because I claim to be an apostle, but because the Lord has spoken to me something I'm going to share with you tonight, I'm going to expand on it, but he spoke some things to me out of this passage that I feel to share with you. Some of you have heard me talk about this, be a little bit of a repeat, some of it won't. So that's part of my context here. I do believe that the Lord put this passage and this message on my heart. Um, the world is bleeding right now. 
global pandemic, I think we'll get through that, actually. I believe what Corey said, that we'll think things will never be the same. I don't know what things will look like. I don't think they will be the same, and I think we'll get through this. Come on, we're the church. Some of you may not be, but you will be. We're the people of God. We're here for this. This is where we roll up our sleeves and shine. We don't submit to Nebuchadnezzar's image. Come on. That's our, our inheritance in this age, is the grace of God in every situation. For this, we have Jesus. And as, as one, of the, one of the brothers that I work with on a missions board back home wrote a letter today to, to the missionaries in our organization. He said, come on, you guys are leaders. Lead your people to victory in this situation. Don't, don't communicate things instilling fear. Tell the truth and then talk about the gospel and where this is going for the people of God. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do that too. <clears throat> the world is bleeding, but we're the church. We have that balm of Gilead. Even if some of us have gotten affected by the virus, come on now, Jesus is king. The Lord will restore us to a place of greater honor to, to be his people in this hour. And that's part of my message, wants to serve the Lord's interest to that end. Not only, of course, the, the issue of, of a, a unique and very bizarre kind of virus, but also the kind of upheaval that we're, we're seeing now in the Middle East, particularly, of course, in a certain nation where there's trauma right now, and there's great concern for the saints there, for their well-being, but also for their strength of testimony. But also, it's just a part of the wor world that's just an open wound right now. We pray for healing. But we also pray for God's people there to provide some of that healing. Lord, this is hard. We, we want to we want to be honest about that. We don't want to just gloss that over. There's pain and difficulty there. But Lord, to whatever degree you give us the honor of entering into some of your pain and their pain, from that vantage point, we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Put a new kingdom stake in that part of the world and bring healing and restoration and a revival and a renewal of the people of God and a Jesus movement that that part of the world has never seen. You know, there's other places where Christians are suffering, but they're not going through public or at least publicized political upheaval so that our attention is drawn there. But there's other places where the pain is just as great. The trauma and the reeling earth are just as real. And we pray for them and we remember them also as if in prison with them, the scripture tells us, right? My point in saying all that is this, we know who we are and we're going to know it better and we know who Jesus is and we're going to know him better and we're going to get better acquainted with him and his purposes and lead a way for victory for those who will believe in an hour and a time such as this. Amen. God has a role for the people of Chicago in this scheme and that's what we're talking about tonight. We need a fresh vision of Jesus Christ on a deeper level to recalibrate us for the hour that we're in so we're not moving around like a pinball in a pinball machine, but we're focused in our pursuit of God and of his purposes and fulfilling his mission 
in our region, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our cities, in our neighborhoods here so that there could be a Jesus movement here for the precious people in this city that can also influence other cities. Come on. Now, I started that little sentence, kind of run on large sentence, with this statement, we need a fresh vision of Jesus. And that's what I'm going to try to contribute to in this vision of Jesus, this appearance of Jesus that occurred in Saul's pathway when he was going in the opposite direction, because I believe there's something here for us. The context of this, I've already set up a little bit for the trauma that we're experiencing in our world, but also hearing that call to rise up in it, that's part of what this message fits into. For myself, I'm coming out of a several month period of illness and thinking a lot about restoration. I got really sick, our whole household got sick. My wife and I got it the hardest. We're completely healed of that illness, but its after effects remain and we're still up and down and thinking about restoration a lot. Ironically, during that period, I was also dealing with some personal things happening in my ministry world that challenged my heart a great deal. And I found myself thinking about restoration more for my heart than for my body. And I had a lot of reason to think about restoration for my body. I mean, I was wondering, should I start, be look, should I start looking on Amazon for body bags here? I mean, am I going to come out of this? Is there damage done inside? You know, I, I, don't, I don't believe that, and I'm exaggerating a little bit to make my point, but it was... It was a little rough. And then with these heart issues, though, it's like, Lord, I'm in my 50s. I've been walking with you. I'm entrusted with leadership in a, in, in a, uh, in a, in a local church expression in our city. I should not be fighting these feelings against people who may have done things against me and said things. It's like, that's going to happen. That's a part of life in the kingdom. I should not be having these reactions. I need help, Lord. I'm weaker than I thought I was. And I wasn't too terribly excited about myself before in that sense, but found out I could go a little deeper. I'm reading slowly through 2 Corinthians, you know, for my second time in relative recent history, I'm going to go through it again slowly, carefully. I didn't read today. I will hopefully tonight, but Anyway, my problems are nothing compared to what Paul experienced in his catalog of hardships throughout that epistle, a little bit in 1 Corinthians, definitely in 2 Corinthians. A night and day in the deep, three times shipwrecked, beaten, 40 minus one, dangers in rivers, dangers robbers, dangers with the Gentiles, dangers in, with the Jews. He begins his epistle, he says, we've been comforted by the Holy Spirit. We've been comforted. We've been comforted so we can comfort you with the comfort with which that we've been comforted by the Lord. It's a little bit kind of double talking with the comfort thing going on there, but he's like, look, we go through hard things 
so that we can experience comfort on a new level so that we could be worth more to you. That's Paul's attitude. It's not about me. It's about him and it's about you. But check this out. He said, we despaired. We were so afflicted. We despaired life itself. We literally didn't think we were going to make it through that particular affliction. We thought we wouldn't. We had the sentence of death written. <laughs> so that we would believe in him who raises the dead. You, we, we, you, we have to meditate on these things, but we can't just meditate on them. We have to go through them and see them through a gospel prism. And sometimes we're forced to the brink. Our emotions are pressed. Our, our thought processes, our relationships are pressed. We're put under pressure and pressure till we're, we're squeezed into our raw essence. Jesus called it, and scripture typically calls that, our heart. So that we can feel and be outside of our dope and our self-medication. Whether it's, that's literal or figurative, whether it's entertainment or just other kinds of escape, sin, refuges that are not the name of the Lord. Sometimes the Lord allows us to be pressed enough so that we can get down to the real us and then find the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Paul said we despaired for our lives. And a few chapters later, he said, we're, we're, is it perplexed? We're perplexed, but not despairing. But earlier you said you did despair. So yeah, well, we... We felt that feeling and we went through it. And we leaned on the dead razor. That's not just the cliche and the cool part of the song. He raises people from tombs. But we didn't know him that well as dead razor until we went through despairing. And on the other side of despair, there's hope. And that's our new emotional makeup now. We went through, we felt despair. And when we got the touch of the dead razor, now we know we can be perplexed and not despair. Okay, we got a, we got a scar, baby, that healed. It, it was a wound that healed into a scar. And so now we know a little bit. And out of, out of our experiences, on a lower level, we can bring God's healing out of our scars because we've known him in areas of hurt and we've been healed by him. We, we, we had enough weakness and enough courage to say, all right, I may die right now, but you know what, Lord, I'm gonna die leaning into you. And so if I die, I die in the Lord. And if I live, I live for the Lord. Whatever, whether we live or we die, it's for the Lord. And in Paul's case, he came back from the almost dead and now he says, now we can comfort you with the comfort with which we've been comforted. If we suffer, it's for your comfort. If we have victory, it's for your comfort. It's all for you. He's a servant of the churches. That is the attitude of an apostle. An apostle is not the CEO over a network. Heaven help us. I don't even care if it's a Christian network. 
An apostle is someone who's been crushed a thousand times and has the character of Christ and can then say, copy me and God will be with you. That's a church planter right there. It's not, a, it's not merely a function. It's an act of God coming through a life that's been broken and raised a thousand times. That's why this man named Paul, who was, had the Hebrew name Saul, why he was such an important figure in Luke's narrative of Acts. He dominates the narrative from this chapter on. There's some dovetailing, but then it focuses mainly on this, this man. Not only because his story is so extraordinary, but because he embodied the virtues of the gospel as one who would help fulfill in that first century that descriptive commission that Jesus gave in Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Saul was the one who carried that in that first generation in a way that was remarkable enough to be recorded in Scripture. Then, of course, he wrote much of our New Testament. He's not the fourth person of the Trinity. Uh, he's, he's a man of, of weakness in whom God displayed his strength. But God used him mightily for a couple of reasons. We'll look at it here in the text but one of them is because he embodied the virtues of the kingdom for apostolic Christianity. I wish, I, I wish a lot of those who claimed apostolic could really take a more raw look at Paul. Maybe go to a 10 to 12 year seminary of just Paul studying 1 Corinthians 2 and then come out as an apostle. Anyway, that story began in this chapter, Acts 9. So we go back to the beginning. Uh, Acts 9, I'm going to read a bit. <clears throat> now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest, so he's in the process of breathing these threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. We find out more later, he was attacking them in Jerusalem. He was, he was searching them out. He was voting for their death when it was an issue. He was in full-on attack against the church. And now he's chasing them where they're fleeing because of persecution. He's going to go get them there too. He's going for it. And he's doing it all with religious zeal. So he goes to the high priest. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. <clears throat> he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter into the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. The plans changed. But he did get to Damascus. He was three days without his sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, because he's praying. And he's seen a vision. A man named Ananias in the vision comes to him and lays his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. Come on, guys. The reputation is out there. Saul is known for his mission of destruction against the Jesus movement that he believes is a blight on a pure Judaism. And that the man died on a stake, a fraud, and cursed of God. Which we find out later, Saul was right about that. But he was the curse for us. Okay, now, now I get it. I had that reversed before. But the point is, this is happening like wildfire. And Saul's at least a key figure in this movement of onslaught against the Jesus movement. And so here's Ananias, who immediately responds, here I am, this, this mark of the loyalist, immediately. And then the Lord says, go to Saul. And Ananias is like, well, wait a minute. And he informs the Lord of some things he apparently wasn't aware of. Isn't scripture, I mean, isn't this odd? If, if, we, if we slow down and ponder it, it's so helpful to see the humanity in this. Ananias is the real deal, man. He's consecrated. Luke is narrating this in such a way to illustrate his immediate response. I'm here, hineni in Hebrew. I'm, I'm at your disposal at all times. I belong to this movement that's being crushed by people, and yet we're expanding. And I'm, you know, I'm here for you. And then he's like, okay, go to Saul. I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> A minute ago, you're like saluting. Now we're in this negotiation. Lord, I don't think you understand how dangerous this man is. Now, a cli the, the preaching cliche would be, well, Jesus is saying, you, you don't understand how dangerous I am to him. But I'm not going to say that. So this debate occurs. You know, we're thinking, look, if we're, if we're having this encounter with God like Ananias, it's like, well, we're just going to be locked right in. I mean, yeah, whatever you say. And Ananias is like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. But the Lord in verse 15, the Lord says, go, because he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the nations and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
Now, in context, that's not payback. He's causing suffering to me. I'm going to cause suffering to him. It's like, no, he's going to have a revelation of me that's appropriate. And I'm going to give him the privilege to enter into the wounds that translate into life-giving glory. Because you can never separate them. And until we have a revelation of Jesus like that, we'll never become what Corey said the city is supposed to be when he said it last night. An apostolic city? I'm always curious what people mean by that, but I know what, what I would mean, and that is because there's an authentic expression of biblical Christianity here. But if we're going to have that, we need a, a biblical revelation of Jesus. I'm talking about the raw data of Scripture, not reading it through the lens of our traditions. I mean, letting the Holy Spirit speak the truth of the book in a living way and in a deep way and in a painful way to our hearts. Remember what the heart is? The center, the core, the essence of who we really are. And so this isn't vindictive. This is an invitation that the Lord's giving to Saul, and he's mentioning it to Ananias, to vindicate this mission he's putting him on. He's going to enter all the way in, Ananias. He's not going to be the cause of this pain anymore. He's going to be the recipient. He's going to be one of you. So Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Shaul, the Lord Yeshua, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Praise God. These were the days, and these are the days, when people were filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't just gain some of the charismatic talents. They were filled. Come on, getting back to that heart. Our essence, the raw us in the interior, the core, the biblical heart has been through things and we've asked during those times to drink deeply of the spirit of the living God. Lord, I'm in a desert. I'm parched. I don't feel spiritual and I don't have any face to put on at church. This is hard. This is terrible. But you know what? I'm going to build an altar. Please, you get me through this so I have a testimony on the other side. And I'm a little bit, just a little bit, actually, more like Jesus from the heart. Not on the performance level, but from the heart level where I can actually invite people into my life. And they'll see Jesus there, not just out here. Come on. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Jeff told us this morning, you can't fake this. The principalities are like, what was that? Boom, 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 boom. Shandai, Shandai, who stole my Honda? And the principalities are like, pew, 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 pew. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of life. Our, our charismatic gifts are in this region. They're right here. They're in the shoulder area. 
You say, how do I know this? I'm making it up. But we carry them like a mantle. They're granted as gifts. They're usable. This is why people can be gifted. And it's like, what's going on with the character there? Because we can be inconsistent, at least for a season, for a while. Gifts bless and they have impact. Life is imparted from the heart. Impact is one thing. Fruit is another. You can't fake fruit. There has to be authentic life filled with the spirit from the heart. Now you have a people who are reproducing themselves as Jesus people. Well, how do they get there? Because they have a revelation of Jesus like unto the one that Saul had in this passage. That's my segue back in. I'm drawn to this phrase here in verse 4. Because I hear in it a depth of history and passion and pain. Saul. Saul. He says it twice. Because when he says it twice, it just indicates an urgent appeal based in love. Based on love, I think, is the proper preposition there. Okay. Martha, Martha, you're doing it wrong, but I love you so much. I appeal to you. Take Mary's example on this one. Simon, Simon, both recorded by Luke. Satan has demanded to sift you like weed. This, this is an urgent hour. I prayed for you so that your strength will not fail. And when you return, which means there's going to be a certain drop, I don't know how closely Peter, Simon Peter may have scoured those words at the moment, but when you hear, and when you return, <laughs> yikes. <laughs> when you return, strengthen your brothers. Saul, Saul, why do you keep doing this? There's an appeal made out of love there. It's urgent. It's not going to be automatic. It's not going to be magic that he's going to get a response, but the Lord's appearing and going for it. No doubt Saul, his Hebrew name, is named after Saul in the Old Testament. Same tribe, Benjamin, same name, Saul, and some similar characteristics, I think. It's interesting the way history repeats itself. We heard about Saul this morning in Jeff's brilliant message, and please, if you were not there, go back and watch it. If it's available that way, listen to it. He talked about Saul, who was chosen as king, and... He brought with him into the anointing and into his role that fear. Remember Jeff talked about that? Those of you who was hiding by the luggage. And that was a sign. Uh-oh. Just like Jeff said. Jeff quoted me this morning. I, so. <laughs> I 
he, he was hiding behind that luggage. The same word was used for David when David came to the field of battle later to confront Goliath. He left his servant by the baggage and he ran to fight. So the author is drawing a contrast between the spirit of David and the spirit of Saul. David's concerned about the glory of God in Israel. That's what motivates him. Saul's concerned about That's what fear is. That fear, which was a hint at that moment in the narrative of selfishness, that selfishness, and we can understand a certain degree of fear that the Lord is ironing out. We all, I mean, we all get afraid. I confessed fear today, and it wasn't the first time. I believe we're all on an arc. We're growing, of course. But every spot and wrinkle, we're praying the Lord would iron them and wash them out. With Saul, that's not the arc he was on. His fear that indicated selfishness grew eventually into narcissism. His narcissism came to such a height, he broke covenant with the Lord, and an evil spirit tormented him. And yet, just like Jeff said, he was still propping up his kingdom piety. He wanted to show face. He was afraid. He didn't trust the Lord, so he offered the sacrifice at the wrong time. You know, you could go back and read those stories. But Saul, in his narcissism, became more concerned about his power and his reputation than he was concerned about obeying God. He wanted to obey the Lord, and I put obey in quotes. He wanted to obey the Lord on his own terms rather than God's. That's the way Saul operates. Just stay with me, okay? I just lost most everything. I've just been rebuked severely. But you know what? I'm more concerned what people think so if you could just walk with me, Samuel, just as Jeff brought out today. It's brilliant. And he, he, it's exactly what we needed to hear. It's like, how do you overcome a principality if the enemy has something in you? Saul, your power is to look powerful to people. But you're not powerful. You can't send those vibes into the spirit realm in Jesus' name. I wouldn't go on some hilltop and start binding things. You want to do spiritual warfare? Why don't you repent? Why don't you give your life to Jesus and get full of the Spirit? Why don't you be real about all this selfishness you got going on and all these reactions it gets through anger and fear and lust and greed? Why don't you be real with people about that and get these things worked on So that 99% of our spiritual warfare can happen just in our character and in our relationships. Which is what Ephesians is saying for five and a half chapters. Why are you binding this and that? If you got rid of your bitterness and healed your relationships and got on a clean discipleship arc that was real rather than church attendance oriented, 90% of these demons that are harassing you would be flushed out. It's the, the, the character of our hearts and the character of the church is what overcomes the forces of darkness yeah, yeah, yeah. because we give expression to the king 
And he already is sovereign and already defeated them. And Saul's like, it's just for the show. Just for the show. Come on, we charismatics have a lot to learn from this passage and its history. And Pentecostals and evangelicals and friends. All of us do. So what does a Saul do who's propping up piety for looks, maintaining political power without spiritual power, but that's okay because I'm a narcissist. What does he do when a David comes around? What did God say? I chose someone better than you. He's a man after, after what? Heart to heart. Come on, this is what this passage is about. Deep calls to deep. That's what we're after. Yahweh said, I found a man like that. His name is David. What does Saul do to a David? Runs after him. He's threatened by him. David, the source of Saul's soothing. So even Saul benefited from the anointing. But still, David's a threat. Throws his spear, pierces the wall. David takes off. It's painful. David is in pain. He and Jonathan are weeping on one another. How could it have come to this? Saul must eliminate David because David is the one that God is with and his favor is on. And he knows in his gut the kingdom has transferred to him. And he knows in his gut that he can do nothing about it. But that knowledge mixed with his self-deception, which is rooted in his narcissism, drives him mad. And an evil spirit torments him, and so he still chases after David. Can you hear the depth of history and passion now when Yeshua, the son of David, says to this Saul, why do you keep persecuting me? Because the Saul of the New Testament also has his own form of righteousness. He wrote about it himself later, speaking about his own orthodox community. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He said elsewhere, they have a righteousness of their own. It's based on works, but it's not the righteousness that comes from God based on faith. That's the way this New Testament Saul was. He was propping up his own brand of righteousness. I mean, the pretty good sign is that he hates Jesus and his people. And it's all for the Lord. We don't think you know who the Lord is, which is a pretty deep rebuke for a doctor of the law. Reduced to the question, who are you, Lord? In any case, the pattern is the same. Saul went after David. This Saul goes after the son of David. Why does this keep happening? Why do you religious people always attack the anointing? By the way, When the all-knowing Lord asks why, the chances are good we don't have a good answer. Well, Lord, let me explain this to you. No, I'm omniscient. So if I'm ignorant of your reasons, you clearly don't have a good one. There's no good reason for this pursuit, but it's the pattern 
that the religion that is the propped up spirituality rooted in narcissism has to go after the anointed one. One more part of that Old Testament story is relevant. When Saul was pursuing David, by the way, the Greek word for persecute is the same word for pursue. So sometimes it just means like a neutral pursuit. Paul said it, well, it's not neutral, it was positive. When he says, I press on, I'm going after Jesus in Philippians 3, same word. Which is interesting because here Jesus says, why do you keep pursuing me in the negative sense? And then later he's like, well, I, st I still pursue him. But now it's to know him. And to come into that suffering now, I'm willing for that. And the glory that comes from it. Because that's, that is he. And I want to know him. So I'm still, still pursuing. But now it's positive. When Saul was pursuing David, when he had his army with him, and Saul had to go potty in the cave. Do you remember that story, 1 Samuel 24? Which, of course, you know, the irony, the Hebrew author loves to tell this. Yeah, he had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> All the younger students are snickering, you know. And David's back there. And David's men are like, the Lord's given him to you. I mean, look at this. He's up in the cave where he could be seen. The men are quiet. The Lord's protecting them probably. And it's, it's humiliating. It's, it's a picture of kind of the reality of the situation. It's like this, this, this is who he is, and David, he's yours. And David's like, no, it's not my job to do this. So he cut off a piece of the robe to prove that he could have killed him, felt bad about it. His conscience was sensitive. Because David, who was not perfect and who failed later and recovered, he was an honorable man. He had that sweetness about him, that anointing he allowed to permeate his heart. So Saul left and David calls out. Saul responds, is that you, my son, David? And David says, why? Why do you listen to what people say? I'm not doing anything wrong against you. I could have killed you. The Lord gave you to me. Look, I have a piece of your robe. I would not lift up my hand against you. I'm not after you. What am I? You're, you're searching for a, a dead dog or a flea. Saul weeps in a moment of sobriety. He lifts up his voice. It's pathetic. The loss, the pain. He's weeping. And this is what he says, swear to me. Saul says to David, swear to me that you will not cut off my descendants and you will not destroy my name from among the sons of Israel. And David swore. And in this passage, the son of David makes good on that promise. I'm going to bring Saul back into a crucial role for the king. Because of David's honor to promise to Saul in his madness, the moment of sobriety, in his pursuit, but still asking for a little mercy, 
David gave it. And Jesus shows up this day and says, you Sauls are always chasing after me. Today, we convert Saul into a religious, narcissistic attacker of the anointing from that to an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ who will suffer for the name and bring about authentic biblical Christianity on the earth in the service of the king. Thankfully, I'm not looking at an applause meter, but neither was I looking for applause at all. Now, my daughter Abby is thinking right now, that's very plausible. But I'm not going to say what she's thinking. I'm just kidding. I'm just messing with you, so I'm, I'm not upset. Thank you. I'm not upset about that lack of applause because I wasn't looking for applause. <laughs> Especially with a message like this. What was I saying now? What was I? Where was I? That's what I get. It's brain fog. I'm still recovering. I'm going to preach as soon as I remember where I was. Now, I know we were talking about Saul. Look, I believe it's a prophetic word, okay? I'm not talking to Saul right now, and you and I, come on now, we're Davidic. But we all got a little Saul in us. And the church at large in the West is very fragmented, propping up its idiosyncrasies rather than King Jesus. But I do believe that the Saul church is going to be converted by an appearance of Jesus Christ in the same glory with which he appeared on the Damascus Road. That he's going to take people that have been trapped in at least some degree of our own selfishness propping up something religious to substitute for something real. He's going to have a people that are raw, that are authentic, that have been shaped on the potter's wheel. And once shaped properly with all the knots rubbed out, put in a fire that's hot, Burning millions of degrees. That's an exaggeration for a pot. But still, it's made into something precious. So when you thump it, I said when you thump it, it sounds authentic. It doesn't sound when you thump it, fake. It looks sheen and beautiful. But when you thump it, I said when you thump it, it sounds fake. It looks pretty from a distance, but when you thump it, it sounds fake. I believe for the conversion of the Saul church, it's going to burn in the fire of God. So that when you thump it, it sings. When you thump that thing that was made in the fire, bonk. It goes, probably not that, but you get the idea. I'm illustrating. It's what I got. We in our foolishness thought we were wise. 
He played the fool and he opened our eyes. I can't believe I'm doing this. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. That's the Jesus Saul saw. Glory and weakness at the same time. Majesty and meekness. Passion and pain. That's the revelation of Jesus that broke the back of deception in Saul's life. Because he knew the gospel. That's why he was so prolific at persecuting the church before this story. And he saw Stephen. He knew. He knew things. He knew the story. But there was still that deception. Still something not broken. He had to see Jesus in this mingled fire of glory and pain. That's what broke the back. He's not the charismatic Jesus. He's the Jesus Jesus. Lord, we pray, show us who you are in and of yourself, not as we would have you to be. He comes and he says with all of this depth of history, but also a depth of pain, Jesus came in a Davidic way. Why do you keep listening to what people say? Why do you keep persecuting me? That's not just a question that indicates Saul's motives and whatever else. It's an expression of pain. Wouldn't you think the Lord would come and say, Saul, Saul, hi, you see that circle of uncreated fire burning around you? That's the glory of God, Saul. That vindicated me. You thought I was cursed on that stick? God raised me up. I am the Messiah. I am the Lord. Now, grant you, all that's implied. <laughs> but he didn't say that. He said, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. I'm feeling the pain of your pursuit. And in a sense, Jesus is appearing to him and deferring, not submitting and handing over the reins of authority. That's hardly what's happening. But there's a deference there. He's treating him even in this mode of, of fury and evil and persecution and defiance and blasphemy. Paul called himself a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. But Jesus did not take this moment and say, I am the Lord. You are wrong. Remember you said that? Remember this? And remember Stephen? Now you pay. No, he says, I'm hurting from what you're doing. He's deferring to him in a sense. Let's talk about this. This is causing me pain. And it's the revelation of the sovereign Lord with all power and authority, who's willing to speak on these terms to a man that broke him. Yeah. It's not just abstract theology. Wow, you are the Lord. I should rethink this. It's the vulnerability he came with. God in the flesh appearing, not just raised, but ascended. And he says, I feel pain. 
I feel my people's pain. I feel your pain. That rage inside of you, you talked about later in Romans 7. That duplicity, that cognitive dissonance, the contradiction inside of you, your conscience hurting you. Why do we have to do it this way? And it's Jesus, if you would, I don't know how else to say this, but it's Jesus being real with him. Not ashamed to associate himself with these people that look like fools who are being ostracized from their own families and clans and tribes who are running for their lives. Jesus says, these are my people. They're mine. And that's the way I introduce myself to you. I don't take advantage. I'm not on a power trip. Here's my moment to prove myself to some very angry orthodox man. No, it's like, do you you feel my pain? This is who I am. I'm identified with these people. Simultaneous with the radiance that blinded him. That's Jesus. Later, Paul called that mixture of glory and suffering. He called it wisdom. And when somebody under the unction of the Spirit can speak forth a picture of God like that, it's called a word of wisdom. And based on that, we obtain the knowledge of God. So when the utterance comes forth that speaks forth the knowledge of God based on wisdom, it's called a word of knowledge. Now that's not the charismatic definition, but it's the biblical definition. And it's ironic, well, anyway. We gotta go deeper than our traditions. We have to go into God's heart through our heart. Come on, deep cries unto deep. And be filled with the Spirit based on a revelation of Jesus as he is in himself. The king whose wisdom is called foolishness by the world. Whose whose power is displayed in a way that's the opposite of power on the world's terms. Because the Lord's like, yeah, we're not in agreement on the way to do things. Your way leads to death, he tells the world. My way leads to eternal life. Who cares what it looks like? What would you expect in a world like this anyway? So Jesus reveals himself without being ashamed of a last name called persecuted. He's not ashamed of that. That's not going away for several centuries. So he's, he just is who he is. So he speaks out of pain and he speaks in association with people who are being persecuted, who look like jokers, fakes and frauds and being persecuted and removed from their own communities. Jesus is saying, this is the way and I'm not ashamed of them and I'm not ashamed of, I'm not ashamed of myself. And again, for lack of a better term, that kind of vulnerability on the road to Damascus, that's what, where Saul says, okay, I see where this all comes together now. 
Let's look at another passage of Scripture. Let's see if we can do this. What do we got here? 928? What time did I get up here? 845? I think I got up here at 9. I think I got up here at 915. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, 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 Isaiah 6, and we'll, we'll read it in a moment. As you're turning to Isaiah 6, if you choose to, I want to, I want to say, kind of lay things out a little bit since I've been making my way to this point so far. I'll say it now. This, this disclosure this self-disclosure of Jesus to Saul that radically transformed him from one extreme to the other is a revelation we also need. Now, what good does it tell me, what good does it do us to tell you we need a revelation of Jesus that's like this when only he can provide it? Well, for one thing, I'm hoping there are little pieces of revelation in what I'm saying tonight. I'm praying that. I believe that the Lord will speak not only through what I'm saying, but in between the lines to give us glimpses of Jesus, who he is. Not the, the red, white, and blue painted Jesus. And I, I appreciate all the good of our nation. I'm going to be thankful to God for all the good. I'm not here to, to have some kind of attitude I'm thankful for where I live and the level of freedom that we have. Being far from perfect, I get that. Unbelievably far. Hypocritically far at times. Nonetheless, that's not our kingdom, so it's not my point. No matter what we can give thanks for, Jesus is not American. He's Jewish and he's kingdom. He's the king. And this nation will be one of the nations that turns against Jerusalem and will be judged by God someday anyway. So let's just be gospel people. So my prayer is that the Lord, even between the lines of this message, gives us little mosaic chips of light that actually reflect Jesus himself. So that when we see this mingling of who he is in his glory and in his pain, it will convert us to something more deeply biblical and teach us how to be real with him and real with one another. Remember that little Saul thing where we're trying to do things to prop up so people have a certain impression? And one day we're going to stand before God. And what good will it be that we gave all these impressions to people? We're going to stand before the living God who sees right through everything. The eyes of fire. They were impressed. God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. We should pray for mercy to become more like that. We need a revelation of Jesus as the high priest who identifies with his people. Why do you persecute me? I am deeply identified with them. I feel their pain. I walk through things with them. Part of Paul's theology of the body of Christ, he got the language directly from the Lord's Supper tradition. This is my body. 
I believe he got it right from that tradition. That's the idea of the body. As well as partly this episode when he met the Lord and Saul, later Paul, realized that when I persecute those people, he feels it himself as if it were he himself I was poking. Now I know we are his body. He is more associated with us than we realize. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's not just an abstract presence, an object that happens to be there. He's with us. The Lord was with Joseph when he was in the prison. That means he was feeling what Joseph felt. He was with him. Come on. He was in prison with Joseph. He walks through things with us. We're not alone. May God open up our hearts to understand Jesus as with his people. Very much related to this, the second way that we need to see Jesus is as the word who became flesh. You can't get more with people than becoming one of them. He didn't become one of the angels. He didn't give help to angels. He, give help, he gives help to the, the seed of Abraham. He became one of us. That's why he made us in his image in a special and spectacular way. Because one day he would become one of us. That's a God who desires to be with his people. Come on, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. But by becoming flesh, he's not just with us and wrapping himself with our, even our weaknesses. And feeling them and going through a whole process of weakness without, without any qualms whatsoever, without any apologies. He's proud of it. Come on, he's glorified as the Son of Man. Glorified as the Son of Man. That's who will return, one like a Son of Man. On the clouds. But as the high priest, he's associated and identified with his people. As the word become flesh, he's the one who takes the almighty word and wraps it in the weakness of flesh. We must see him as the one who perfectly and mingles, I'll say it this way, he perfectly mingles strength and weakness. But he doesn't just mingle them perfectly. He mingles them necessarily In weakness, we're made strong. We sometimes predicate our whole way of, of responding to a problem by avoiding the weakness instead of saying, I'll take it and let's see God do something. Come on, let's take some baby steps toward this together. Let's grab on to some weakness we're experiencing and saying, okay, I'm not going to try to put on a face. I'm going to grab onto the flesh of this thing and see the word take me through it. And then on the other side, I'll know God better and I'll be like him a little bit more. I'm not saying embrace demonic attack. We rebuke the devil. We fight against demonic forces. But the circumstances that accentuate our and remind us of our weaknesses, they're the ones that say, okay, what have I got to boast in anyway? I'm not here to impress people. I'm not here to just survive and self-medicate and enjoy as much of the world as I can. I'm here to, be, to become like him and to shine for him. 
And I can't do that from the shoulder region or this region. I could only do that from down in here. And I don't have the courage to let him down in here unless I see him embrace the same weaknesses that I embrace. That's who he is. He did it without sinning, but he still felt the pain. And he had no apologies about talking about it. I am grieved to the point of death. Stay with me and pray. No wonder why God was so with him. He was real and he was raw. He revealed his heart. Yes, there were secrets for certain disciples. Come here, I'm going to tell you guys something, the three of you. Yeah, I get that. But that's not because he was coy or embarrassed. He just was who he was. Jesus looked around at them angry because of their hardness of heart. Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus took it on. Our humanity, our reality, and part of the reason is if we could see him that way instead of the distant Jesus, the man-made, American-made Jesus, the for-show Jesus, we started in the living room, but now look at our campus, Jesus. Go back to the living room. Who heard me say that? Well, there's nothing wrong with those things, but it's like that shouldn't be our growth arc. Transformed lives is the fruit, the power of God. Not the story of structures. I'm talking about getting back to reality. I'm talking about deep crying unto deep. I'm talking about seeing Jesus as one who took on our frailness with the depths of his soul. I mean, he wasn't just a human. He was the human. He was more human than any human ever was. Tempted in all things, yet without sin. So he never failed. He never faded from God's will, but he suffered through every difficulty, sometimes, sometimes with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Hebrews 5. How do you account for that? How do you and I read that when we do? That's a real man right there. That's, that's a mensch. He's not embarrassed to call himself the persecuted. He's not ashamed to be identified with people who are persecuted. He's not ashamed to say, this made me angry, and his anger was always righteous, by the way, so be careful with that. To say that he's grieved, to say that he enjoys fellowship. I, I desired intensely to have this supper with you. I was longing to be with you at this supper. This is like one of my favorite things now. If we don't have a revelation of him, then we'll never be real with one another. We'll always be Saul, propping up an image that cannot overthrow the forces of darkness that have all the people in bondage to whom we're supposed to be ministering. At least not on a citywide scale. In 2 Corinthians, Saul was, excuse me, Paul, was 
in a, in a, in a conflict with a church that had adopted apostles. Paul called them false apostles. They boasted in their image. And they boasted in their spiritual experiences. I just have to wonder, do we read our Bibles? Does 2 Corinthians not exist? The spirit-filled community not know there's a 2 Corinthians. You know there is a 2 Corinthians, right? I don't mean that about you. I just sometimes read these things and then spy other things, and I'm like, do we not see this? As an apostle, Paul is one who planted churches. It wasn't just a function to arrange them. They bore his character. So he's saying, I'm not an apostle because I was caught up to the third heaven, though I was, but you made me say it. But if you want to be impressed, Paul said, go by what you actually see about me. The life I actually lived. And the fact that I've been beaten up a lot for this gospel. I'm weak and have to depend on the Lord. And because he died for me when I'm weak and have to depend on him, I do! And he doesn't come through every time I want him to, but he eventually does. You know, he always comes through, but I mean in the time we want him to. And, but then eventually he does. Now my scar is a little longer than I wanted it to be, but it is a scar and now I know him a little bit better. And now I know how to teach people how to relate to one another in the Holy Spirit. Now I know how to plant a church. I'm going to lead them to the Lord and teach them how to be the body. Yep, that's where Paul founded his apostolic credentials, in his weaknesses and in his troubles, and getting through them with Christ's power, not in his boasting and spiritual events and experiences, and not in uh, his boasting about all the, 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 whatever, the size of the churches or whatever. It's, it's like, it's the authenticity. We need a revelation of Jesus who became human. He became really, truly human so that we could have churches in the image of a true apostle like Paul. And finally, as we've already begun to indicate, and now we'll look at our passage, third, Jesus, we must see him as the suffering servant. He's identified with us. He is wrapped in our weakness, but he's also one who has suffered and still feels the pain. The fact that he's persecuted, as we've already said, means that he's feeling the pain, even as he's appearing to Saul. This revelation of Jesus signifies that the suffering of Jesus, a heart that is so covenanted in love, when it's unveiled, it also shows the pain and invites us into the sufferings. Now with that, I just want to look now at finally at this Isaiah 6 passage. Isaiah 6, <clears throat> verse 1. All right, are, we, are you with me in Isaiah 6? <clears throat> I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm almost done. I can feel it getting warm in here. Hang with me. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, or 
we often say or sing, high and lifted up. Those two phrases in Hebrew are important, or in English, we'll keep them. High and lifted up. So he's sovereign on a throne. He's high, because his status is already there, and lifted up, which seems to indicate he's rising on this occasion. In either case, these are, these are words pointing up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He's going up. He's already up, and he's going higher. And that's Isaiah's description, high and lifted up. The seraphim stood above him, which means they're attending him. A seraph is a, is a fiery serpent-like creature. Other ancient peoples had similar pictures of angelic beings that attended the divine. They were like escorts or guards, and they had different functions. These functioned in some ways having to do with altar ministry, obviously, from this passage. But by very nature, they are fire, and each has six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So fire beings cannot look on this glory because they're covering their faces. And in verse 3, one calls out to another. So they're not talking directly to God in this episode. Holy, 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 which is certainly a good thing to do, and it's what we would normally do, and it happens elsewhere. But here they're talking to one another, almost, almost as if to warn one another, don't look. Holy, holy, holy. So he's, you know, the King Uzziah death caused an occasion, it seems, where the Lord, who's already lifted up, rose up. And they can't look. This incandescence, millions and billions of suns. <laughs> And the fiery ones can't look, and they're warning one another. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The thresholds of the temple are shaking. Smoke is filling the temple. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and a seraph flies and, and, and touches his lips with the coal, and he's purged and can now hear the commission. Turn with me now to Isaiah 52. So we're going 40-some chapters to the right. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Just a couple of verses here. Isaiah 52, 13. This is the beginning of the description of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Listen to this terminology. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up. Same description as Yahweh on the throne. Because the God who was seen as the sovereign in radiance that could not be directly gazed at is now the companion of this person. Somehow these two images are mingled. And in my view, I believe Isaiah saw this man. Now he doesn't say that. It's something I speculate. In any case, this servant is described the same as Yahweh, high and lifted up, and greatly exalted. So something higher is happening. Now listen to this description. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man. This is now the one being described. His form more than the sons of men. That's how he'll sprinkle many nations. King will, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Same sovereignty, same prosperity, same glory, but look at the one being described. Who will believe our message in verse 1 of chapter 53? He grew up 
before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look on him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised. He was forsaken of men. This is the same sovereign. This is the same majesty being articulated. He's as rejected in this passage as he was exalted in the other one because the two are blended in him. They're, they're married. That's how he is sovereign because he comes into our world and suffers our pain for us. That's his love. And if we don't see him that way, we won't be able to enter into the same authenticity and into the same invitation of suffering. Lord, have mercy. I can't help but be convicted right now, being aware of my own shallowness and wimpiness. Despised, forsaken, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. These words still glow in holy writ. They are still read in public services describing Jesus, and he has no shame. Despised, forsaken, sorrow, grief. People hide, they hid their face from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. We did not seek to restore his honor. But it was, it's because our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried, yet still we esteemed him stricken of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our shalom, our well-being, fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Behold the Messiah. Behold the King. This is what Saul saw and heard. Why do you keep persecuting me? This is what transformed him into a man who became soon an apostle. And this is what will restore the church to the glory of the former days, but in latter days intensity. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. On him, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Extraordinary. No defense. No saving face. He was mistreated. He was mocked on a kangaroo court. The, one of the few things he said, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power. He's alluding back to the judgment scene in Daniel 7. When the Ancient of Days sat on his throne and he judged the beasts, but he did not judge the Son of Man, he gave him a kingdom. And here's this court judging him and condemning him. And Jesus said, you'll see the Son of Man. Your court condemns me, and I'll own this now. But through this, God will vindicate me. I'm waiting for him, and you'll see the vindication. Your court lasts a minute. Mine lasts forever. But you can't separate the two. We got to go through the lower court to experience the glory of the higher court. And the lower court is not going to be a friendly. And if we don't see Jesus taking on that suffering for the sake of glory, we won't be able to endure it ourselves. Lord, have mercy on my soul. 
I plant churches. That's what I do. And I suddenly, like right now, feel disqualified. I just being real. <laughs> by oppression and judgment, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? He wasn't guilty. We were. He suffered our punishment, and they, they stripped him, and they impaled him, and they lacerated him. And there he hung for all the people to see and wag their heads at him. And they gave him no bathroom break and no ability to bat away the flies or the birds. And it was all for us. And he says, I was willing for this and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed. God will clothe me. I'm not ashamed. You, you, you all don't be ashamed either. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor there was, was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he could render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many because he will bear their iniquities. Man, I want the knowledge he had. I want the knowledge of him. I find myself scratching on the surface to see more of him that I might become like him because I see myself resisting these elements of his personhood. But I have a feeling that the same one who's going to appear and help us convert from Saul to Paul in our Christianity here in the Western world I have a feeling the one that's going to do that will help us all along the way in our weaknesses and some of us even in our sins. If we're willing to confess and forsake and be real, bear our hearts and stop this, this sin of hiding because of our shame, could it be because we don't know him very well who embraced his, though he despised it? He was willing for it out of love. So I leave you with some thoughts before we pray. Let's face this Lord in his glory and in his pain, in his resurrection and in his crucifixion. He's no longer dead, but he still has the scars. Let us dig through the things that press our souls. Let's be real about them. Let's not run away from them and get mad and use anger as a, or, or escape or some other sinful uh, behavior as self-medication or a desire to escape reality. Let's dig through the things that press upon us and find the treasure on the other side. Even things that happen that were evil and against us and not God's will. Uh, some kind of suffering he may not have caused, but now that it happened, there's something glorious on the other side if we'll dig with him. He's borne his soul to us. Let us bear our soul to him. I don't like to suffer. I hate it. Just a little bit, and I'm already, well, I'm going to get out of this. Ah. Lord, have mercy on us, but, but, but when it happens, let's dig through and say, Lord, get me through this and get me out of it bigger in you than I was 
so I can more easily go lower to people and serve them without having a reputation to protect. Seriously, I mean, it's like, did you think I preached good? Did I look okay? You know what? It's like, we got to get through these things. I guess I was speaking mostly to Christian ministers there, but all of us, even with our Sunday faces and things and promoting ourselves or whatever we do to look right and spiritual to others, we have to get over that. Jesus bore it and waited for God to vindicate him. So if we can't even confess, well, I get not to the sins yet, but if we, if we can't embrace when these weaknesses and sufferings press upon us to, to find him on the other side, then how are we going to grow? The one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, Peter says. I don't like it any more than you do, but it helps to talk about it. I encourage you to dig through. I encourage us all to come out of hiding. Let's have a heart. Let's be authentic. Let's come out of hiding and confess our sins. We only live once. The people were so concerned what they think, they're not going to judge us. Well, but they're going to be ashamed they won't like me anymore. Maybe not. If they're true friends, they will, but maybe not. But maintaining their friendship on false pretenses is not worth our character. Let's come out of hiding. Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24 is a great prayer to pray. Lord, search me and know me. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I've prayed that many times during this combo season I had of illness and resistance from people. And I'm like, man, what this is exposing in me, Lord, who even cares what they did to me? I do. And I had to pray and pray and pray, and I prayed this prayer all the time. Lord, I see the hurtful way. I see the hurtful way. Lead me in the everlasting way. It took me some time to come to victory. I couldn't believe how much time it took me. Of course, when I felt better, it was easier. But whatever, there's no excuse. And then I had to pray similar things recently, like really recently. Like it popped up again. I thought it was a pretty good guy. I mean, seriously, do you think Isaiah had a cussing problem? I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't think he had a cussing problem. I think just when he sees glory, it's like, okay, stuff's coming up. <laughs> and there was an altar there. Let's just, we only live once. Let's be real. Lord, search me, know me. See if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. I've, I've got another one for you. Just real quick, I'm almost done. I really am this time. Let's develop Ananias relationships. Let's develop community. Saul met the Lord. He had an encounter. And you'd think that's enough. And we charismatics like to say that. And it's okay. It's okay. Just one encounter will do way more than a million sermons. Yeah, well, this encounter with, with Jesus for Saul wasn't enough. He had to go to Ananias and get prayer. <laughs> In fact, I'm sorry to tell you this part, but the first encounter blinded Saul. And we're like, I just want one encounter, Lord. Well, now I know Saul was in a certain mode of life, but still, some encounters hurt. I remember one time 
I ran away from an encounter I was about to have. I was in my basement, not too far from here. I was up in Milwaukee. Shondai, Shondai. I, don't, I, don't, I was speaking in real tongues, but we're in a public setting right now. So I'm just, I was just enjoying the Lord, and the presence of God began to just come in that room in a unique way, manifest way. And I'm like, okay. I had the heaters going. It was freezing cold. They go off by themselves. Click, click, click. No power went off. The heaters just go off. The room starts to click and, crap and rattle like, like uh, settling noises. Suddenly. <laughs> and, and then, um, and then this, he began to slowly just manifest his glory. I didn't see anything, but this sense of presence. I was like, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Oh, man, oh, man. I'm like, okay, that's it. I ran right upstairs. I'm not joking. It was terrible. <laughs> Write that in your blog. And I ran upstairs, just wanted to blog that to encourage your heart. No, I wasn't transported, I ran away. I, brother, he's the Lord, you shouldn't be afraid of him. Yeah, okay, I didn't know that. Thanks, but you weren't there. Jacob's like, Ugh. hey, Jacob, what happened? I encountered the Lord. <laughs> what was it like? It's kind of like an ancient UFC. I mean, we were wrestling. He's who won? Well, he he kind of said I did. He said he let me prevail against him. And then. Um, I said, I won't let you go and, until you bless me. He asked my name. Because the last time I was asked my name, I lied. I said I was someone else. I said Esau. So before he blessed me, he asked my name. I guess we had to get an identity thing settled. I guess someone had to be, learn how to be real. Not all encounters are pleasant. Just one more encounter, Lord. So yeah, I guess I won, but I'm broken now, forever. I'll never be the same, but now I'm real. Now my 12 sons can be 12 tribes, and it will be a nation, right? You, you, you can't fake the authenticity. <laughs> Not all encounters are pleasant. I value them. Most of them are. Come on, guys. We're all good presence people. Most of them are. They're sweet. They're healing. They're wonderful. They're refreshing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not against them. I'm for them. Since my very dark period in the last few months, God's presence in my life has been sweeter than it has been in a long time. I'm all into it. I love it. But this kind of encounter is not always pleasant and it's not always enough. We still need one another. Jesus himself appeared to Saul. You think that's enough? He says, get up and go to Ananias and he'll pray for you. You kind of view it on the surface. It's like bad cop, good cop. I'll blind you, he'll heal you. It's not usually the way we think of it. Wasn't Corey saying, Lord, I pray that the, we got to pray the scales come off. Guess who put them on? That was because he saw the radiance of Jesus. The light was so bright. 
probably was a way to shut Saul in so he could see a vision with his internal eyes. Jesus himself said, you're going to open up their eyes, but I'm going to shut yours for a minute so you can concentrate on what I'm talking about. Can you imagine being led around? What happened? I, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to describe it right now. Well, are you still, um, are you still going to arrest the Jesus people here? Probably not. Probably not. It's pro- that, probably not. And then Ananias prayed, and he was healed, and he was filled with the Spirit, and he was baptized. Guys, we can't be real if we're not actually developing connections with people with whom we can be real. Instead of using them as people to affirm us in our facades, we should confess our sins to one another that we might be healed. Develop Ananias relationships which include confessing sin to one another when appropriate, and certain things are only appropriate for closed circles and certain people, of course. We're not spreading the bad news far and wide. We're being discreet but still authentic. And pray for one another and exhort one another, how often? Day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me tell you something. I love encounters with the Lord. But that's not enough for me to remain unhardened from sin. I need people who actually know me. And they see the way I treat my wife and children, whatever else, and the way I lead or, or, or submit and whatever else I do. And then who can pray for me and exhort me when I need it. We all need it. Amen? Let's stand. You know what? I think... if. If it's not too late, we could just end with some worship and, and be praying this way. Um, and I had a song that you guys sang that I was going to ask for. I, I can't remember what it was. Do you know which one I'm talking about by revelation? No, you need Ananias. For that. Um, oh, it was the past the outer courts. It was the one you were singing. Was that spontaneous? But you can still do it, right? Can we do that? Let's do that. Let's just begin to worship. <clears throat> Let's, let's pray that we would see the Lord. And if he has to shut our eyes to things we used to see, not literal blindness, but if he, if he has to change our view of the world by shutting our eyes to the way things used to look and opening up our eyes to him, then so be it. Lord, help us right now. Let's, let's just... Let's just look to the Lord right now. Can you do that? Let's, let's just spend a few moments of our time and energy and look to the Lord and ask him for revelation of who he is in himself. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.